Alrighty, now we get to get sober. My name is Rich, I'm an alcoholic. And um, I just wanted to say, in case anybody didn't know this, that I, Jerry and I have never met in, in our lives. We haven't had a chance to talk about this. The extent of our planning and interaction uh, for cohesive interaction was a prayer that we said um, about three minutes before we got started. Um, and, and it's already clear to me um, that I'm really lucky to be here, you know, and, and to be uh, meet another friend in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, just has a lot to offer, you know. And I, I know he's he, he's talking. I'm like, wow, never thought about it like that. And that's um, boy, I'm glad he cleared that up for me, right? And and I'm sitting there going, you know what? This is the type of thing that out there in the material world for a business meeting, you put like weeks of preparation into to hope to have some synergy. Um, when in fact you get to have a guy with perfect synergy with beautiful hair and a guy with no hair and it just comes together like that and what Jerry missed obviously is you have to keep shaving your hair if you want to stay so you can't let it grow back uh, for long-term sobriety that was the mistake yeah um, so anyways I'm out of my mom's house and now there's a warrant for that and I'm bebopping in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous because I've been sending you all here for years and I figured I should, you know, give it a whirl myself maybe. Uh, and people are saying some stuff to me, you know, they're giving me the, the double-edged sword of AA, right, is that we can't give away what we don't have. So they're giving me the best of what they got, you know, and, I, and I'm going to a 7.30 meeting, a noon meeting, and a night meeting because I'm totally unemployable. Um, my body's breaking down. I'd have, I'm 29. I had my liver biopsied for fatty spots on the liver. I'm told to not um, take any Tylenol for a year. The doctor said it's like the worst thing for your liver and eat this way and do this and that. And, um, you know, things aren't looking good physically or, or on the job front. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to three meetings a day and getting drunk, you know, like once a week. Um, the, People are saying things, you know, that we've already heard talked about. They, you know, they're patting me on the back and saying, just don't drink and go to meetings and uh, put the plug in the jug, kid. I, I drank more than you, or I spilled more than you drank. <laughs> you know, and what we do is we don't drink between meetings. Just put the plug in the jug. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, well, man, if I could do that, I wouldn't be here. I'd be home with the plug in the jug, right? Like... Is that the best you got for me? And, uh, and it probably was. And what I, what I didn't know is that double-edged sword of AA and that I didn't know that not everybody in AA is an alcoholic of my variety. And they're very welcome. I hope that nobody you know, takes what I'm about to say the wrong way. Uh, if your experience is mine, that you're coming to a ton of meetings... You make 90 and 90 look like a joke. You're setting up chairs. You'll do the literature table. You'll mop the floor. You'll go to AA dances until you learn to dance. And, um, I mean, I would do absolutely everything that this fellowship had to offer other than the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I mean, I am fellowshipping myself nuts and getting drunk all the time. And if that's your experience... There is something else that we're about to talk about, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are people who on that sliding scale of alcoholism, and I, I'm, I'm no expert, I'm an observer of, of AA, and I just can speak from my experience. 
if you find that coming to meetings and getting a nice cup of coffee, which is what people, many people offer, they say, what we do is we just get a nice cup of coffee, we sit down and we hang out, you call me once a day and that'll be it. And that's not working for you. There is something else. And there are people, plenty of them, with 20, 30, 40, 50 years sober that will happily tell you they've never read this book, they've never worked a single step, they got a cup of coffee, they made a host of friends in AA. Let's face it, we're pretty nice, we're interesting, we're fun, we go to Denny's, you sit at Denny's, you hear these goofy stories we tell, and they stay sober for 40 years off of their own decision, I'm not going to drink anymore. Guess what they have that I don't have? Power, choice, and control over the drink. They have decided on self-will, and just which is awesome, that they're not going to drink. They're going to supplement their decision and reinforce it through some friends and fellowship in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and go on to have an amazing life. And guess what? AA has worked for them as wonderfully as it has for me. So this isn't a matter of any bit better or worse. I just want to get the point across clear that if you're a person in this room like me, that you're coming to a ton of AA um, and doing all these peripheral things that AA offers in the fellowship and getting drunk all the time, um, there is this other thing called the program of AA. That, and you might just be an alcoholic of my variety that the book talks about that says that that alone isn't going to cut it. And then there's some other stuff. So that's going on for me. There's, there's people in AA at the meetings that I hate um, in, in the meetings that I'm going to in between getting drunk because um, they're making these little comments here and there. And um, I, I had one guy, George, would always give me a $100 bill and say, why don't you just go get drunk and finish the job? And uh, that was actually the most effective method for keeping me sober because I'd come back next week to give George his $100 bill and go, I didn't drink, you know, out of sheer resentment and like vinegar and I'll show you. Um, then there was this woman, Janine, who I hated Janine more than anybody in AA. And Janine, she had this book with her. She was 18 years sober when I met her. She carried a book with her to every single meeting, which I'm thinking, like, 18 years sober, haven't you read it yet? Like, what, what's the problem here? Um, the other reason I hated her is that she doesn't call her sponsees sponsees. She doesn't call them pigeons like they used to in the old days. She calls them duckies which I just thought was disgusting. And she comes into a meeting, and you guys will relate to this, because every area I've told this story, there's a Janine in the area. And, you know, Janine's got the book. She's got the stupid smile on her face. Like, she clearly likes being sober, which I don't relate to. An alcoholic of my variety is not happy about being sober in the early days of sobriety, you know. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things that made me think that I might not be alcoholic, because you all talked about... It looked to me, right, like you stopped drinking and we're happy. And I stopped drinking and the walls start closing in. Every day I'm not drinking is a worse day than the day before. The bills are coming in. The IRS is calling. I'm acutely aware that my only little sister hasn't spoken to me in six and a half years. If I see my mom, her eyes drop to the ground. She can't look me in the eye. I mean, this is this. I, I could barely take a day of it sober. Right? And, and yet you all are like, I'm sober. Ah, you know, like it, this is an excellent state of being. And I'm like, well, something's wrong. You don't have what I have. And uh, I mean, alcohol, you, 
why are you happy? And that's Janine, and she's got the smile, and she comes in, and there's always like six of these duckies that come in in back of her, and Janine sits down, and they all have their books, and dish, 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 dish. the duckies all sit like in a row next to her. And then at the end of the meeting, you know, they do this thing in Maryland where like you get 10 seconds to say how you got 30 days sober, 60 days, you know, leading up to a year. I don't know if you do that here, these little metal chips that like, celebrate your journey up to a year or whatever and uh, you know they'd be like does anybody have 30 days sober and, like the first ducky would come running up and be like oh my name's stephanie janine's my sponsor i have 30 days today i just wrote my fourth step and i'm going to her house saturday to share my fifth step i think i'm getting free <laughs> and she'd like go sit down and i'm in the back of the meeting you know and i'm sitting in the back of the meeting and what's going through my head in an aa meeting is I'm going to knock her teeth so far down the road. I'm going to knock that smile off her pathetic face. You know, I'm just hating on her from the back of her. Does anybody have 60 days? The next girl comes over. My name's Becca. Janine's my sponsor. I have 60 days. I'm on my eighth step. I've made two amends so far in the ninth step. This is really getting great. And she goes and sits down. And I'm just thinking, I'm going to knock the smile right off her face. I'm going to knock her teeth down her throat. I mean, that's what I'm thinking, in an AM, probably my third meeting of the day. And then we get to my favorite part of the meeting, right? Does anybody have 24 hours or a desire to start over? And I have to do the longest walk in AA one more time to come up and get another trip. Which, by the way, I have enough of to string probably across the state back home. And... Um, you know, and I can't figure out what's going on because like I said, you all are saying things like 90 and 90. I'd do like 180 and 90 and get drunk, right? And this is going on. I make it to day 36 in one of these episodes. And at day 36, after all of this trying and everything that was going on in my life, um, I reached that place where I can't live one more day sober and I know I can't take another drink. I knew that. I'd drank enough to prove that and I tried enough things that I'd proven that and in that chapter more about alcoholism here are some of the methods we have tried and it says that we can increase the list ad infinitum and I hope that each of us do that personally that means I get to add to that list for me and some of the methods I had tried uh, were of course switching from whiskey to beer doing the beer only no shots it's the Jägermeister and the tequila that make me really lose it we're going to cut that out we're going to stick to just the drinks uh, you know what I'm going to do um, I'm, I'm going to lay off the drink in and just smoke the wacky weed I'm going to you know but then you get thirsty from that and then I'm back to the drinking and um, that was one of the methods I tried you know, and then another method that I tried, this is not in the book, but it's ad infinitum. One of the methods I tried was coming to a whole lot of AA meetings. It's going to come to a whole lot of AA. I was trying to manage my drinking. I thought you all could like, you know, I, I didn't realize when it says I was past human aid, I'd overlooked the fact that each of you are human. <laughs> I, I thought that like coming here and hanging out, right? And like just coming a lot of it, mopping, I'll just, I'll just busy myself sober on that list would be joining the gym and eating healthy. I did the tomato and the grapes and you know, you're going to go into join the gym. I'm going to call my mom, like sobriety through better living. I'm going to call my mom and tell her I love her once a week. I'm just going to be a good guy. Um, these are some of the methods that I tried that didn't work. And when I got to that place at 36 days, um, I lived in this crappy place. What I'm about to tell you, um, it, I, I don't know how to explain it uh, other than this power that, that we talk about. 
And from here on out, we're going to be talking about power and, and this second, third step. I'm going to use the word God because we don't have a lot of time. We're sharing time, and it's a short word. And um, I will tell you this, on the third step, uh, don't ever call on newcomers. They all made that mistake. You called on me at like a third step meeting this one time. And I had, you know, a couple months and I started, you know, seized upon it as an opportunity to share my understanding or lack thereof uh, with the higher power. And I was like, well, let me tell you all about what I think about this. What's going on here with the God? I don't know anything that there's God and God's stupid and religions suck and rah, rah, rah. But I am a surfer. And here's what I know is that the way that waves work is that they're energy that travel thousands of miles across the ocean in a very orderly fashion in lines of energy. And what makes a wave break is when it hits half the depth of the size of the wave, it causes the bottom of the wave to stop like a car in a car crash and the top to spill over. So an eight foot wave will break when it hits four feet of water but it has to hit that reef or the sand at the proper angle. So the swell has to be coming from the northeast or the southeast to hit the sandbar to break in the proper direction. But that's not all. It also takes a west wind, a wind coming from the land to the sea. And if the swells have traveled thousands of miles across the ocean and hit the sandbar at the proper depth and the wind is doing its thing, I get a good day surfing and I am willing to concede that I can't make all of those things happen. Something must be going on out there to make all of that happen. And one of you, after I finished that dissertation, grabbed me after the meeting and said, hey, Rich, you just used up 20 minutes of our meeting and um, we have a word for that thing that makes the waves and the wind and all that. We just call it God. It's got three letters. It's really short. And when you just say that, we'll know you're talking about the thing that makes the wind and the waves and all that. So could you just, you know, shorten it up for the meeting? So ever since then, I've done that. So from here on out over the weekend, when I say God, it's got three letters. Whatever pops in your head when I say that, that's what I'm talking about. A lot of time words separate us, you know, they kind of divide. Oh, I don't like that word. Um, I'm talking about whatever you think it means. Um, so <clears throat> what happens to me is at 36 days, so I take as many Thailand laws I could take and everything in the medicine cabinet and I'm checking out uh, because again, that's what cowards do and that's the best solution I, I can come up with. I, I didn't have a 82 Mustang or whatever that was to suck on the tailpipe. I, I went with the Thailand law solution and, uh, and I'm living in a crappy apartment because that's where drunks live. And what I'm told is that when my body shut down, I, I collapsed into a refrigerator. The refrigerator hit against the thin crappy wall. The lady next door had a perfect work attendance record, she tells me today, we're friends. She hadn't missed a day of work in nine and a half years, but that day, it was a Tuesday, she was home from work sick. She hears this <clears throat> into her wall. She thinks somebody's coming through the wall. She runs out, looks through the front door, sees feet on the ground, calls 911. I end up back in Peninsula Regional Medical Center for the fourth time that year. I wake up in one of those sexy paper hospital gowns with one tie in the back where your butt hangs out. I mean, these things are good for your self-esteem. There's all kinds of wires and things are beeping and stuff. And First thing I thought of was, this, and, and statistically, there's a couple of you that don't know this, that there's a place just beneath loser, okay? 
Um, somewhere up here might be cool, and then there's loser. And just beneath loser is those of us that can't even kill ourselves right. You know, it's like just beneath loser. You're so lame you can't even kill yourself right. Right. So, so there I am having that realization. And, and as my eyes clear, y'all know who's at the foot of the bed? Janine with the duckies. And she's got about four or five of them there. And I'm not sure that there's a place called alcoholic hell or anything like that. But if there was, I think I'm in it, right? And Janine did not talk to me that day because Janine had tried to talk to me a lot up to that point and I never listened. Because Janine's always talking about the one thing in AA that I don't care much about, these steps and something about numbers. and I don't like any of that. I like dances and meetings that don't talk about that stuff. And uh, Janine just, all I remember saying is, hey girls, I'd like you to take a good look. This is what happens to an alcoholic that refuses to take our steps. Let's go, girls. And they left. And um, something happened. That was kind of the opposite of all those cars rolling, all those weekends in jails, all those, you know, those near misses. Uh, it, it, it somehow did something inside that caused a thought that I've never had one like it before or since. And that thought for me was that if I get out of here, if I live through this this time, I'm going to find one of those old guys with that book in their hand and that smile on their face and I'm going to do everything they tell me to do. That's it. And I got to tell you, your reaction is much like mine. I mean, I've read Bill's story. He got the white light and that cool breeze. I mean, that is a spiritual experience. Not Janine and the duckies. I mean, talk about getting cheated in a hospital room. How does he get a white light and a breeze and I get Janine and duckies? But it turns out that what happened to me was every bit as significant as what happened to Bill because it was mine. And it caused that next thought that did not come from me because I don't listen to what anybody says. And I knew immediately who I was going to, and that's where the journey began for me uh, with the gentleman that took the time out of his life to sit me down and walk me through Silkworth's deal and explain to me who and what I am, which uh, Jerry phrased beautifully. Uh, I like to sum it up even shorter that I'm a guy who's got a body that can't handle booze coupled with a mind that won't leave it alone. And that's a hell of a combo. And with that, you know, I'm dead meat. Um, and I, he explained this obsession to me very clearly. He said, do you have any other allergies? And I said, yes, I do. And uh, to this day, I have all of these. I used to get shots as a kid. Um, I'm allergic to dogs, cats, pollen, ragweed, pretty much anything in the spring that's going on outside. My eyes are running and I'm sneezing. Uh, I have one food allergy and it's strawberries and I've had it since as long as I can remember. If I eat strawberries, I will get red blotches on my neck. My windpipe will close. I'll start gasping. You'll have to hit me with an EpiPen to open my throat up. Um, I haven't had one of those episodes, I think, since I was about four years old. <laughs> Um, haven't had any strawberries. I'm very happy to report to you. I'm, I'm 42. I don't have a strawberry sponsor. I don't go to Strawberries Anonymous. Um, when you're having dinner tonight, I'm not going to be counting the number of strawberries that you're eating. I don't have thoughts like maybe I could have some strawberries if I just eat them on the weekend. What if I slice them and put them on ice cream? Perhaps I could have them when I'm on a cruise. What if they're in a milkshake? Maybe they're blended. You know, none of this stuff goes through my mind like it does about alcohol. 
How come? Because of how this whole thing started. What makes me one of you is what alcohol does for me, not what it does to me. Alcohol does to me the same thing as strawberries. It kills me. But in the process of doing that, it gives me so much. Strawberries don't give me anything. There is no effect produced by strawberries that I am mentally clinging to and hoping to recreate that wonderful moment of the past. That power that I was given. Strawberries have never given me any of that. So therefore, it's been very easy to not have another strawberry. My relationship with strawberries is fundamentally different than my relationship with alcohol. And he told me, you know, as we're going through this and I'm starting to understand what's going on and how this illness works and that it quite really is important that I understand this thing to be physical as well as mental. But this mental thing that my real problem is sober, right? If the, the, the truth is, and that sounds very weird in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, to say, you know, I don't have an alcohol problem. What I really have is a sober problem, which I treated with alcohol for a very long time. And then alcohol stopped working, was causing severe physical damage, uh, incarceration, financial difficulties, ruining every relationship in my life. Uh, so my solution to this problem called sober uh, really went south on me. And, and now that I can't do any more of this drinking, I'm left with this terrible sober problem. Um, that I have done nothing for since I was 12, you know, like I, I've, I've got nothing. And that's where I started to come to believe that that solution was going to be found here. Um, and I did it. Bill says in his story, at long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. And I think that order is significant because what happened is by coming here with you folks and watching what was going on in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, we all carry the message of AA when absolutely necessary. We use our mouth. I mean, this is the least potent form of AA that Jerry I do. I mean, what I'm doing is watching you on, seeing who's got a nice life going on, what you do, how you treat your family, what your career looks like, what your involvement in the community is, how many people you're working, you know, like, what's, I'm just watching you. And, uh, and let's face it, we got all kinds of sobriety in AA. We can try to be as nice as we want, but we got ground beef and we got filet mignon. What do you want, right? My sponsor would always say, what do you want? And, uh, and, and I want some of that filet mignon, right? So I'm watching about what, what people are doing. And by seeing your life and what you're demonstrating, and I'm starting to feel some of this as I'm around you. And as I put this into my life and follow these simple actions, I come to believe this stuff. And what he told me that I'd already done the second step. He said, you'd already come to believe in a power greater than yourself. Have I, Jim? How did, didn't know I did that. You know, that's good information. I'll share that at the meeting. And, uh, I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, think about it. Why are you here right now? Why do you keep coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous? How come you don't go to one more rehab, one more drying out joint, one more spin dry, a wind up joint, what we... We call them, you know, it's where alcoholics wind up, whether it's a jail or a rehab or, you know, how come you don't go to one more doctor? You love paying doctors $250 an hour to lie to them, you know, get a psychiatrist to come up with one more diagnosis, you know, manic, depressed, bipolar. I mean, alcoholism looks just like it. I love getting doctors to tell me I got something other than alcoholism because then I don't have to do all this. I could just take a pill. And uh, why are you here? Why do you keep coming here? And I didn't have an answer for that other than the fact that something in me knew that something in you 
there's just something here, right? And it's indescribable. But that, that when spirit meets spirit, we can't deny it. When the lies are removed, I love that. You're left with the truth and there's not even words for it and I can't deny it. And I'd come to believe in a wonderful power in my life called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd come to believe that there was a real answer here with some depth and weight. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't have told you about it. If you'd asked me to talk, I'd have to sit right down. But I knew it was here. And that was the beginning of hope for me. And it wasn't any deeper than that in the beginning. I had come to believe that there was a solution in Alcoholics Anonymous because I couldn't answer his question. Otherwise, why are you here? And the last I checked, unless Virginia's different, you don't get court-ordered to weekend AA conferences. You might get court-ordered to meetings where you get your slips signed and stuff, but if you're here tonight, it's because you want to be. And I kept coming back. And he said, well, if that's true, if that's true, Rich, if you've come to believe in this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, and we've talked a little bit about what Alcoholics Anonymous is, he showed me the beginning of our other book, that 12 and 12, where it says that real clearly what Alcoholics Anonymous is. It's a set of principles, spiritual in nature, that when practiced as a way of life, enable the sufferer, that's you, Rich, you know, we say that, that's you, Rich, <laughs> to become happily and usefully whole. And best of all, the obsession to drink, you know, is like expelled. He also likes saying, you know what expelled means. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't that sound good? You know what, I'm like, yes, I would like it expelled. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm happy to report that that's exactly what happened. And he said, well, if you now know, right, that that's what AA is, no more, no less. It's just a simple set of principles that you've never touched. You've come to a ton of meetings, but never touched these principles. Would you like to make a decision to go ahead with the process? And that was it. We did not have, I wish I could share some lofty spiritual conversation we had at step three. Uh, we didn't. He actually said something to the effect of, I don't even want to talk about God with you right now. Uh, we'll talk about that somewhere around step 11 because whatever it is you think about God is so badly broken, you're here at my dining room table. So whatever it is, it's not working real well, right? And Let's face it, if my 11th step God even resembles my third step God, chances are I've skipped some serious work in the middle, right? And uh, so we didn't get into any lofty stuff. My third step decision was very, very simple. It was the decision to go through with the process of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was had to be pointed out to me that I'd already come to believe in it or I wouldn't be sitting here on my own nickel for free and for fun. I wasn't court ordered that time. I was just there. Thank you. Rich, I was hoping he'd talk for about 30 more minutes, uh, but I got you covered. Uh, good to be here. Good to be back. Thank you, Rich. Um, I was thinking as he was talking that, um, and, I, and I, I was reading this with a guy the other day out of the book, there's a, there's a piece in our book that many times kind of gets, gets unnoticed, and it, it it's talking about a, an actually a Two guys that were never members of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of them was a was a was a non-alcoholic, uh, 
And it hits me every time I read that. Um, because if you think about this, you know, a little more than 80 years ago, there was no solution for an alcoholic. Right? You got ridiculed or locked up or shunned, <coughs> banished, whatever whatever they did. You know, they, they had some health farms where they put you in a hot tub and give you some vitamins and send you on your way and they try to make you feel better and stuff like that. But there was real no real real solution. And you know, it talks about in the in our literature that the solution is obviously a spiritual experience. Um, but there's a story in there about Carl Jung and uh, Roland, a guy named Roland Hazard. And it's interesting that in our book, there's a one of the most, I guess, relevant stories is about a guy that never joined, was never a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and about a non-alcoholic. And that story literally changed the course of history. And we never really think about that much, but that that the one of the guy that they talk about in there is a guy named Roland Hazard who was a member of the Oxford group. But you know that guy went to Carl Jung, he couldn't stay sober, his family was very wealthy, and he tried all kinds of ways to stay sober, he had all kinds of resources available to him to stay sober, and nothing worked. So he goes over and talks to Carl Jung, and he works with Carl Jung for a long time, like a year or something, if you listen to it, if you read the, the story, and the, you know, Roland Hazard thought that he had learned so much about the inner workings of his mind, and the hidden springs, as the book, as the book says, and he felt good physically, that there was no way he could go back to drinking. And you know, so he leaves Jung, and pretty quickly after that, he's right back drinking. And he can't understand you know, why he's drinking. So he goes back to talk to Jung. And you know, the doctor says, you know what, you're, you're screwed, man. He says, I've never, I've never been successful with anybody like you. You have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. And that in my experience, there's no hope for you. And... I mean, that's not, that's not very good, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and Roland asked a question that literally changed the course of history. He asked, are there no exceptions? Now, if he'd have just said, okay, doctor, thank you. I'm going to go back to, to the U.S. and see what happens, or I'm going to you know, go do something else. We might not be here tonight. But he said, are there no exceptions? And the doctor said, well, yeah, here and there I see a few exceptions. I don't understand them, but there they, seem to be uh, in, in these spiritual experiences, the deep and effective spiritual experiences that people have. And, of course, then Roland said, well, that's good because I'm a good church member. So uh, he thought that was going to be good enough. But, you know, he gave a little bit of hope to that guy. And so he left there basically searching for a spiritual experience and became a member of the Oxford group. And through the, you know, what the, the tenets of the Oxford group and some of the things that they did, similar to what we do today, that guy was able to stay sober and had that spiritual experience and was able to go on to, you know, obviously help Ebby and then uh, Bill Wilson. So we, we owe, we owe, a, 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 a huge debt to non-alcoholics. We sometimes don't give them the credit that they need, and we owe a huge debt to to the Oxford Group and to alcoholics that never joined AA. We wouldn't be here without that. Um, 
and I bring that up to say this, that when I was sitting in that detox and that guy came in and talked to me and he explained to me what alcoholism was and what it wasn't, you know, I knew that I had that. And he basically, if you'd asked me at that moment what I thought I needed, here's, here's about what I would have said. I was like, well, I definitely need a job. Right? If you get me a job, that'll be a good start. And you know, I got a lot of people I owe money to. I got bills that are piled up. You know, I've lost that house, and you know, I don't have a car anymore. The eighty-two Grand Prix, by the way, I borrowed it from a guy named Shaggy. <laughs> guy I hung out with, he would call him Shaggy. He looked just like Shaggy on Scooby-Doo car, the old Scooby-Doo cartoon. And uh, I actually had borrowed it from him that morning, so it wasn't mine. Um, but yeah, so I need a job. I need somebody to give me a car so I can get back and forth to that job. If you can give me a little bit of money, you know, let me start paying some of these bills and pay some of these people that I owe so I can go out and walk on the streets without having to look over my back. Things will be good. And, you know, I probably need some medication. I, you know, I got this depression, this anxiety, and, um, you know, I probably need some medication for that. I probably need to go see a therapist. And, um, you know, if you can, if, if you can just talk my wife into coming back then everything would be okay. And it looks like that that's the solution. That let me, let me get all these things in my life in order and everything will be okay. And that I'll quit drinking. And you know, what, that guy, what that guy told me was very similar to what Carl Young told Roland Hazard. And, and you know, everybody has their own experience. This is just mine. He basically told me, he says, Jerry says, unless you find a power greater than yourself, you don't have a chance in, in the world to stay sober. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't skirt around it. He just point blank said, if you don't find a power greater than yourself, you're not going to stay sober. And I, uh, I didn't really understand everything of what he was saying. I, I, I know that, uh, that I had tried a lot of what I thought was you know, religious stuff through church and other things, and it looked to me like none of that ever worked. Um, but he told me that that was that, that was the solution. That we had a program of action. And it was up to you to follow. And he told me to do one thing uh, that day. And I mean, I'm I'm probably not even sober that day. But he told me to to go back to my room and to get on my knees and to and to basically just ask for help. And he said it doesn't matter. If you believe it or don't believe it or understand it, he said, just go do it. And he said, go in there and get on your knees and ask for help. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, do the same thing. And I don't know why I had the willingness to do that. I didn't argue or fight with him or anything. I just said, okay. And I went in there and I got on my knees and I asked for help. And I slept that night um, in that detox on suicide watch in a funny blue outfit, the best I'd slept ever. And the next morning I got up and I got on my knees and I asked for help. I didn't understand it. I had no clue what it was about. I had, uh, I mean, prior to that, I had never really ever prayed or, I mean, I had been in church and we'd pray and you know, I'd be with certain family members and they would pray before dinner and stuff like that. But I, I had never done any like prayer like that on my own. Um, and, you know, all I know is something something happened and something started to change. And you know, quickly after, not long after that, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And I will say this, that, that all those things I thought I needed back, the money and the wife and the job and the house and the car and all that stuff, uh, the, the medication and all that, I was, I was, uh, I, I thank God for good people in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, that told me the truth. And because I was point blank told, you don't need any of that stuff. Now it was done in a loving way, but it, the, the, I was saying, Jerry, your, you know, your actions is what made you lose all that stuff. You know, what you need to do is focus on your spiritual growth. You need to focus on getting sober and you need to focus on taking these steps and taking some direction from us. And that when you, when you straighten out spiritually, and again, at 22 and just being basically a little street punk and, and not knowing anything, I didn't understand what all that meant. But I was, I was told that when you straighten out spiritually, all that other stuff will take care of itself. It's hard to believe that when you're sitting there and your wife's sleeping with your cousin and you ain't got no money and you don't know where you're going to go when you get out and you got people you know, looking out for you, you know, trying to get you. and you know, it's, it's hard to believe that. Um, I can tell you... You know, that what they told me was absolutely true. And, you know, so basically what happened to me was, I, you know, I was introduced to, to, the, to the steps and was introduced to the literature, was introduced to the book. And um, the, way that, the way that, like, step two and three came to life for me, the first thing that happened was, I mean, I felt like I was just a dirty, rotten kid and that I had lived such a filthy life that if there was a power out there that, that was going to help me that it wouldn't want to have anything to do with me and I mean I didn't have any real beliefs one way or the other I just I mean I knew there was something there but they didn't want to it didn't want to have a whole lot to do with me and you know the, I was basically kind of was was led through this process of hey well let's look at the record let's look at your life and you know guy helped me look go back and and look at all the times that I should have gone to prison and I didn't Times that I've been in car accidents and you know and should died and didn't. You know times that I had uh, you know committed suicide and died and come back. And all of those chaotic, crazy things that that we do when we're when we're out there drinking. You know that that I had gotten through all that stuff pretty much unharmed. And you know he looked at me and he said, "You think that you had something to do with all that?" And I, well, no, I had, I had to concede that if it had been left up to me, I would have been dead. I mean, that's what I wanted, and I wasn't. If it had been left up to the state of North Carolina, I'd have been in jail or prison, and I wasn't. And I had to concede that I didn't have anything to do with that. That, that you know, the, 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 one of the things in the We Agnostic Shepherd says that lack of power is our dilemma. And we got to find a power to help us to live, not just stay sober. And you know, I had I had to concede that, man, you know, I didn't have anything to do that. That maybe there was a power that helped me get through that chaotic life drinking, that would help me stay sober. And now all that sounds cool, but it it was quick. It wasn't like a big long analytical. Let's try to figure all this out conversation. It was, hey. Forget what you think you know. 
put everything you think you know about religion and spirituality and stuff on the shelf and just believe that whatever that power was that helped you would help you stay sober. And that's that's about as simple as that that was that discussion. I didn't I didn't put a label on it or a name. I was told that I could believe whatever I wanted to believe, which was which was very uh, and that opens the door for any of us. And I was told that as I stayed sober and as I took those steps, that a belief would come to me, and that I would form a relationship with with a power, and that that was ultimately the purpose of those steps was to help me to form that relationship and to have a spiritual experience. And, you know, that's the power that I turned my life over in, at the third step. And my third step was very, very simple. I was told a few things. I was told that my will was my thinking and my life was my actions. And that, hey, Jerry, you don't have a whole lot of control over your crazy mind, your, your thoughts, but you do have some control over your actions. And that in a very simple form, what that meant that I was going to turn my thinking and my actions over to this power. And that I was going to try to let that power guide my decisions and guide, guide what I did. And, and it, it certainly meant that I was going to move on with the rest of the steps and make that decision to, to try this. And I, and I did that. But I'll tell you how some of that showed up for me, though, was that, that right I started going to meetings. I said this when we when I kicked it off. I, I got to meetings early. I stayed late, and I, I interacted with people. I was scared to death of people. I was scared to death of meetings. I sat in meetings for months without talking, just because I was scared. But I showed up every time, and you know, I I called a sponsor. I talked to my sponsor. I interacted with with him. I couldn't talk to anybody else, but I could talk to him. Right? I. Uh, and, and that that power showed up in my life through one of the one of the very first AA meetings that I went to. I was sitting there, and a guy walks in that I used to drink with. I mean, this guy was way worse off than I ever was. <laughs> and when he walked in, it just kind of floored me. I'm like, man, what's and I'm like this, you know. I don't want anybody to know that I'm in AA. And uh, but he walked in. I mean, he lit up like a a lantern when, when he saw me. And he looked completely different. It was a very much experience like Bill had when Eppie came in with his eyes all glowing and all that. And uh, his name was Marshall and he came up and he says, man, Jerry, it's good to see you. He says, I've been waiting for you. And I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> he thought I was worse than him. And, uh, but he'd been sober like nine months. And man, I just couldn't imagine that, that this dude was sober. And when I wanted to feel good about myself, I'd hang out with him. And he, he, uh, he talked about how he had done that for him. And by seeing him sober, it gave me hope and it helped me to come to believe that, man, if this works for, for him, it's going to work for me. And I'd go to speaker meetings, you know, with, I'm talking just a few weeks sober. And I'd hear people give talks. And that power spoke to me through people that were up there talking. You know, they had these wasted and busted lives, and yet now they're sober. And I would believe just a little bit that if it works for them, maybe it'll work for me. And things would happen. You know, I, I didn't have anywhere to live. I had no job. I didn't have any transportation. And I was told just put that on the burner and take these steps. And somebody gave me a place to live. 
temporarily. That guy let me borrow that. Somebody gave me a job. Took a chance on me and gave me a job. That guy that let me borrow that car to commit suicide, Shaggy, he let me borrow that car to get back and forth to the job. And I started realizing as I took different actions that I got different results. I had a, uh, I had a, a 16-year-old sister at the time that I, I'm, I'm sober a few months and she got killed in a car accident. And it was real, just real traumatic on the family and uh, you know, there were people coming in from all over the place and uh, you know there were a lot of people that were, that were medicating themselves and they'd be hiding out in the yard and behind the barn and doing stuff and I, um, I was able to actually stay sober through that and, and help the family out and transport people back and forth from the airport and, and, and help provide support and you know, I realized that, like we got through the, the funeral and all that and I realized I never thought about drinking I thought about trying to be of service to the family. Barely sober. And getting through that without having to take a drink and do other things that I used to do, I, it like hit me like, my goodness, I, you, know, you can. You can stay sober. There is a power that's helping you to do this. I started that job, I mean, I would wake up just full of fear and be anxious and I'd have these, on the way to work, I'd have these anxiety attacks. And I'd, just, I'd have to pull off the side of the road. One morning, I'm like, I just can't make it to work. Like this, and I pull off, and I'm scared to death. I'm just like froze up, sitting there. I look behind me, and this car pulls up. The guy gets out. I'm like, man, it looks like Craig, the guy from the meeting. He recognized my car. Goes up, he comes up, and he's like, what's up, Jerry? I'm like, yeah, I'm just just chilling out, sitting here. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, well, yeah, we are. Yeah, I felt that way too and then I was able to tell him the truth and I'm like that like just mystified me that that you know and that guy recognized the car stopped and he talked to me for a few minutes and it, I was able to get back I was able to get to work and uh, those experiences are what helped me come to believe that there was a power that would help me I can remember it you know I, I, I get to work and at this time, I worked for a. It was, I had, this guy took a chance on me, gave me this job working in this. Uh, the cellular industry was just kind of kicking off, and all the phones were installed in cars. So I actually got a job installing phones in cars. And I'm sitting. I get. I get the job done, and I'm. We, we're in a garage. Well, I'm. I back this very nice car out the garage, and the door's still closed. <laughs> Looking around, nobody sees me, right? That, that old thinking comes in. Man, I know I can cover this up. And I pull up a little bit, and I go back, and the car is all kind of scratched in the back, and the door is dented in. I'm like, well, it's not too bad. I can probably blame it on the other guy. And so my first thought is, well, I'm just going to cover it, you know, act like I don't know anything about it. Pull the car around, and, and I can remember what my sponsor told me, right? Try to do the right thing. Yeah? And uh, so I basically got went up front and got my boss. I'm like, hey, man, I, let me show you what happened. They came back there, and I mean, I'm scared to death. They're going to fire me, and then they're going to do more stuff, and I'm going to get locked up, and I'm going to have to start an A meeting in jail. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, he looked, he's like, he says, that's why we got insurance. He says, pull the car around, tell the guy, tell him to go get it fixed, and we'll, we'll pay for it. And so, and that sounds simple, but it was a big deal to me. And I realized, right, I, again, be honest. 
tell the truth, do the right thing, and, and different things, you know, good things will happen. I was cleaning up um, some stuff from the past, and I had some uh, charges down at the Wake County Courthouse. It, it was traffic stuff, but I had to go clean it up, and I, I'm barely sober, and I'm scared to death, right? I'm, I'm determined to do this without an attorney, right? And uh, I'm just going to go in there and talk to the DA and see what happens. Well, I, I freeze up. I get up there to the courthouse steps, and I freeze, and I, I can't go in. So then I'm just going to basically go run and let them come find me, right? Well, that's what I'm used to. Just you know, if they got, yeah, they'll come get you. And I was sitting there and I was getting ready to leave, and I looked and there was this homeless lady that was sitting there pushing a cart with these rags on her, with these old ratty gloves on, and something just hit me that, and here I am worried about some traffic violations. I got actually got the job. I got you know got a job now, and I got a little bit of money to actually pay for the tickets, depending on what they do. And um, yeah, I'm worried about that. And this lady's got some serious problems. And like this feeling came over me, it just it was almost like a voice that said, "Just go up there and tell the truth." And for some reason, I was given just enough strength to get up there. And this is a true story. I get up and I get off the elevator. And then right when I walk off the elevator, there's a girl walking on the elevator that I, that, I'm, that I know. I hadn't seen her in quite some time. And she's like, Jerry, she says, what are you doing? I was like, well, I got these, you know, I got these charges here. I got to see what, what's going on with them. And uh, she's like, well, come on back here. I know the DA. And she walked back there, and she talked to the DA. The DA saw the charges. I told her the deal, what was going on with it, and gone. Drop the charges. And little things like that, is, for me, is what helped me come to believe that, that there is a power that cares for me if I'm willing to, to be honest, if I'm willing to walk through fear. And, you know, I've got story after story of, of stuff like that, that that has happened to me as a result of, of, of trying to, to believe that there's a power greater than myself. And, you know, obviously, I, um, I mean, I'm a guy that, I did that third step at about three weeks sober, and it was not there was not anything magical or or real spiritual about it. I mean, it was it was just like I said. God said, "Hey, your will is your thinking. Your life is your actions." Say the prayer, and the best thing you can do after you say that prayer is to is to move on with the rest of the steps. That the evidence. Of whether you've taken those first three steps is are you writing an inventory? Uh, okay, um, and you know what happened? I said that prayer, and I'm a guy that's never taken that back. I don't understand that. I turned it over and then I took it back. I turned it over and then I took it back. Now I'm not saying I haven't made some bad decisions sober, and then I haven't haven't uh, made mistakes. I don't see that as a third step issue personally. It's more six, seven, eleven, or other stuff. But but that you know, I, I was told to think through that decision carefully, and that it could be permanent. And I believe that if I ever took that third step back, you'd see me drinking. Uh, it's got very little to do with whether I'm, I'm you know making mistakes in life and learning as 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 I grow. 
it for me what it meant was early on that hey I'm gonna I'm gonna make an effort to try something different I'm gonna make an effort to do what these people are asking me to do I'm gonna make an effort to try to take these steps because I you know not I didn't have anything else to lose I mean, it was the, I mean, AA was the last place on the block when I got here. And, you know, so that's, that's what I did. I moved on with the rest of those steps. Um, as I've stayed sober, the, uh, you know, I do believe that, that today that my life is really none of my business. And that, that my life is, is God's business. My life belongs to Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, my job is just to show up each day and to do the best that I can and go into the next thing, not try not to figure things out too much. One of the things I was told when I took the third step the very first time was that you know, you, I want to analyze and try to figure stuff out. There's nothing to analyze or figure out. Take actions, and you, you can't understand something until you take the action and have the experience. And we can sit back so much and try to analyze stuff that we freeze up and get paralyzed and we never do in. And that's not the that's not the spirit of, of the steps and not the spirit of what we're trying to do. Right? Our job is to, to to take those actions and to expect that power to help us. And to uh, to live with whatever results that we that that we get. How we doing on time, David? Man, we could eat, huh? Time to eat. Huh? Yeah. All right. I'm. Uh, we will. Um, we'll get Rich up here in a second. Now I hope everybody shows up tomorrow. <laughs> we know if you show up tomorrow, that either your sponsors force you to be here, <laughs> or you ain't got no life. <laughs> I'm joking. All right. Thanks. I just wanted to real quick wrap up that he just uh, reminded my sponsor would always talk about the old timers have this code, you know, that when they when they talk to us and say like, "How you doing?" after the meeting, um, and I'd, I'd go, "Whoa, you know, she hadn't called me in three weeks." She like they don't care about the relation. That's not what they're asking. How you doing is code for what step are you on. Uh, so when they say, how are you, I'm supposed to say, you know, write an inventory or I'm on step A, you know, making the list or, you know, whatever. So that was that code. But then he broke the code of uh, the third step code, right? Is, uh, and I know you've heard, they, they say, what, do you, what are you doing? And I'd say, working on my third step. And what, that, that doesn't fool the old timers because they know that when, when I say I'm working on my third step, that's code for I'm scared to death to do my fourth step. I have no faith in the process. I like to talk about faith. I like to talk about God. I like to talk about, but in fact, I'm scared to death, right? And I love that. He said, the only physical evidence, you know what evidence is. That's what they use against you in court all the time. The only evidence of having turned anything over, the first action I take against my will is that inventory. Because if there was one thing I knew for sure, uh, it's that that inventory, you know what that's called in my world? That's called a paper trail. And in my business that I was involved, you don't write anything down. You know, I just got out of the federal penitentiary. I don't want to go back. Um, so that, that fourth step was a big deal for me. 
Now, this story is about living the third step, and I'm hoping to just end tonight, um, if for no other reason than I like telling the story, uh, because it helps me reflect on where I really am with this thing. And I didn't, uh, you know, this is just one of those stories that's been around AA forever. And a drunk is, uh, you know, he's struggling. And, and he's just out there on the road struggling, and, he, and he's stumbling along and comes upon God. And... Um, he just is about breaking down. He says, God, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And God tells him, uh, God says, please, please give me sobriety, God. And God says, well, what are you willing to pay for it? And the guy reaches in his pocket and gets out a crumpled up $50 bill. And he says, I've got 50 bucks. And God says, well, I'll take it. And boom, he's sober. And the man stands up straight and he's drunk no more and it feels pretty good. He gets a few steps away and he turns around. He says, well, yeah, but God, I just gave you every penny I have. I need to get some gas from my car to get home. And God says, well, wait a second, you have a car. You didn't tell me that you had a car. <laughs> Cough up the keys, that's part of your price for sobriety. And the man hands over the keys and he says, well, yeah, God, but if I hand you those keys, how am I going to get to work tomorrow? And God says, get to work. You didn't tell me you had a job. I'll take the job. That's part of the price for sobriety, too. And he says, well, if you take my job, how am I going to pay the mortgage? Mortgage, you have a house? You didn't say you had a house. I got to take the house. The house is part of the price of your sobriety. And he says, well, if you take my house, where's my family going to live? Family? You didn't tell me you had a family. I'll take the family. That's part of the price for your sobriety. And as the guy's handing all of that over, God says, well, wait a second. In order to keep your sobriety, you must give me these things. But... I'll let you drive my car as long as you remember that it's my car. And you can have the job as long as you remember who you work it for. The house, it's mine, but you can live in it. And that family, they're mine, but I'll let you take care of them for me. And that's an especially appropriate story. I'm... Uh, just celebrated my third year of marriage. I have a beautiful little girl. She's 15 months old now. Her name is Isabella, and we picked that name because it's an old Spanish name. Uh, it comes from the queen, but it literally translates into God's precious gift. And when I hold that little girl up, and I think to myself, when I'm in a good space and I'm living surrendered and I'm living the third step, it's real clear to me that this isn't my daughter. I've got eight, roughly 18 years to try to give 100% of everything I got, you know, to this little girl before I hand her back over to God. And hopefully I could say, well, I did my best with your kid. And I like to think that I remember who I'm serving when I go to work each day and whose car I'm driving and where these things fall. So that'll be a good one for me to reflect on as I go to bed tonight and see how I'm actually living this third step. Thank you.